Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. In November of 1974, 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville was the scene of the gruesome mass killing of the DePeo family by their oldest son, Butch DePeo. Fourteen months later, the next residents of this house fled their property due to a series of terrifying paranormal experiences. Their story inspired the Amityville Horror movie franchise. everyone and welcome to episode two of Based on a True Crime. My name is Chelsea and I like true crime. And my name is David and I love horror movies. So uh, this week is for you David um, because this week we are doing the stories which inspired the Amityville Horror franchise. Um, a long-running haunted house <laughs> story. Ooh. We're going to start by talking about two real-life events which inspired this movie series, both of which you're probably familiar with if you know anything about these films. The first is the case of family annihilator Ronald DeFeo Jr., and the second is the haunting of George and Kathy Lutz, which is the story told in both the original 1979 film and the 2005 remake. The main source for the information on Ronald DeFeo Jr. is The Real Amityville Horror, The Tragic Murder of the Ronald DeFeo Family by Douglas B. Lenat, while the story of The Haunting was first published in The Amityville Horror by Jay Anson. So Ronald DeFeo Jr., who was nicknamed Butch, was born on September 26th of 1951 to his parents, Ronald DeFeo Sr. and Luis DeFeo. He was the eldest of five children, and Ronald Sr. was a successful car salesman at his father-in-law's Buick dealership in Brooklyn, New York. Butch and his siblings had a comfortable middle-class upbringing at 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville, New York. Ronald Sr. was also a hot-tempered, domineering figure, and he would frequently fight with his wife and children, and Butch in particular. As the oldest son, expectations were high. In addition to this treatment at home, at school, Butch was bullied for being overweight and for his brooding personality. So as Butch became older, he started lashing out physically towards his father and others. So his parents initially tried taking him to a psychologist, but when he wasn't receptive, they instead uh, began bribing him with incentives for his good behavior, which included a $14,000 speedboat. Makes me wish I had behaved more poorly growing up. Right? <laughs> Uh, this bribing continued even after he was expelled from school for violence and began using LSD and heroin at age 17. He was given a cushy job at his grandfather's car dealership and received a weekly stipend, which he spent on drugs, guns, and alcohol. So 
conflicts with others intensified, and he threatened a friend with a rifle while he was on a hunting trip, and he even tried to shoot his father at point blank range. He pulled the trigger of his 12-gauge shotgun after pointing it at his father's face during a fight between his parents. The gun happened to malfunction, and the incident shocked his father, but nothing was done to curtail Butch's downward spiraling behavior. In 1974, Butch attempted to steal money from the dealership, uh, not satisfied by his supposedly meager salary, which I somehow doubt that reporting considering he has a $14,000 speedboat that he got even though he was being a dick. So he was given the task of depositing more than $20,000 to the bank from the dealership, but instead he planned a fake robbery with friends. He very nearly got away with this plan, but when police came to get a statement from him, he freaked out at them, causing them to become suspicious of his story. He also refused to go to the station to look at mugshots of possible suspects. Ronald Sr. became suspicious of his son as well, and when he confronted his son about his potential involvement, Ronald Sr. told his son, you've got the devil on your back, to which Butch replied, you fat prick, I'll kill you. Two weeks later, Butch made good on this threat. In the early morning hours of, it was November 13th of 1974, Butch selected a 35 caliber Marlin rifle from a stash of weapons, and then he went to his parents' bedroom, where from the doorway he fired four shots, two were into his father's back, and two into his mother's. He then entered the bedroom, shared by his two younger brothers, uh, Mark, who was age 12, and John Matthew, who was only nine. He shot each of them in the back once while standing over them. And then finally, he entered the room of his younger sisters, Dawn, who was 18, and Allison, who was 13. He shot them both at point blank range. The physical evidence suggests that Allison and his mother, Louise, were awake when they were murdered. Butch's murder spree began around 3 a.m. and was over within 15 minutes. He showered and trimmed his beard. He collected his bloody clothes and the shell casings in a pillowcase, which he drove to Brooklyn and dropped into a sewer drain. He arrived at his grandfather's dealership by 6 a.m. and called his father to see why he hadn't shown up at work. Unsurprisingly, there was no answer. So he left work earlier that afternoon, claiming to be bored, and then spent the rest of the day visiting friends, including his girlfriend, Sherry Klein, and his friend, Bobby Kowski, who told each of them that he hadn't been able to reach his family that day, attempting to establish an alibi. He expressed concern that his family appeared to be home, but was not answering the phone, saying that he suspected something was going on. He asked Bobby if he wanted to go out later, and Bobby said he was going to take a nap and then head to Harry's, a local bar, around 6 p.m. When Bobby arrived at the bar shortly after 6, Butch was already there and repeated his story about not being able to reach his family. He told Bobby he had to go home and break in through the window, to which Bobby replied, do what you have to do. Within minutes, Butch returned in a state of dismay, shouting, you gotta help me. I think mother and father are shot. So Butch left the bar with Bobby and a small group of patrons. Moments after arriving at the house, Bobby found the bodies of Lewis and Ronald Sr. shot to death in the master bedroom and saw at least two of the murdered children. Joey Eswit used the telephone in the kitchen to call the police. After speaking with the operator, he was put on the phone with the police officer. I am the police officer and David will be Joey. Where are you at? What number? What number on the house? Where are you at? Ocean Avenue and what? Amityville. Okay, now tell me what's wrong. I don't know. Guys 
Officer Kenneth Guguski, a village of Amityville patrolman, arrived on the scene. When he arrived, Butch and the others were gathered on the front lawn, with Butch sobbing that his parents were dead. Inside the house, Officer Guguski quickly discovered the bodies of Ronald Sr., Louise, John, and Mark DeFeo. When he returned down the stairs to the kitchen to phone the village headquarters, Ronald was also in the kitchen, seated at the table and still crying. When he heard Guguski's description of the four family members he found, Butch told the officer that he also had two sisters. By this time, another village patrolman, Officer Edwin Tyndall, had arrived, and together they found Dawn and Allison's room and their bodies. It had been 15 hours since the murder took place, but no one knew that yet. Butch was questioned for the first time that night by Suffolk County Detective Gaspar Randazzo while still sitting in the DeFeo kitchen. He immediately tried to pin the murder on Louis Fellini, a notorious mafia hitman, claiming that Fellini had lived with them for a period of time and had gotten into an argument with Butch after Fellini criticized Butch's work at the auto dealership. So since it appeared possible that Butch could become a target if the murder was linked to organized crime, the questioning was moved to police headquarters. It was there that Butch submitted a signed statement that the previous night he had been at home watching the movie Castle Keep until he fell asleep at 2 a.m. When he awoke at four, he said his brother was using the bathroom. Since he couldn't fall back asleep, he got ready and went to work early. The rest of his statement described his afternoon visiting friends and being unable to contact his family. When they finished questioning him at 3 a.m., he went to sleep on a cot in the back filing room. He was not under any suspicion. In the meantime, detectives were searching the DeFeo house. At 2.30 a.m., Detective John Shervel was taking a second look at Butch's room, which had only been given a cursory look over since it was not considered a crime scene. He found two rectangular boxes labeled for 22 and 35 caliber Marlin rifles. Although he didn't know what type of gun the murder weapon was, he grabbed the boxes on instinct and brought them to the station. Shortly after arriving at the station, not only was the gun identified as a 35 caliber Marlin rifle, but also questioning of Bobby Kelsky revealed that Butch was a gun nut and had staged a robbery at the family business. So at 8.45 a.m., Detective George Harrison shook Butch awake. Butch asked whether there were any developments in finding Louis Fellini. Instead, Harrison read Butch's rights. Bit by bit, detectives picked apart his story, starting with the time of death. Since the family was found still in their beds and in their bedclothes, detectives found it unlikely that the murders occurred after Butch had left for work, especially as he claimed his brother was already awake and out of bed at 4 a.m. Eventually, the time that the crime took place was established to be between 2 and 4 a.m., meaning that Butch, according to his own story, would have been in the house at the time. At first, Butch said that he was in the house at the time of the murders and had entered their bedrooms, but only after the murders took place. Then, he once again tried to implicate Fellini, saying that at 3.30 a.m., he awoke to Fellini holding a gun to his head, with another man standing next to him. Fellini and his companion then led Butch from room to room, murdering each one of his family members. However, after giving this story, he admitted to gathering and discarding the evidence from the scene. That's when the police sprung their trap. Why did you pick up the cartridge if you had nothing to do with it? They asked if Fellini had made Butch at least shoot one of the family members in order to be implicated in the crime. Finally, the officer asked, It didn't happen that way, did it? They were never there, were they? Fellini and the other guy were never there. No, Butch confessed. It all started so fast. Once I started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast. 
Nearly a year later, on October 14th, 1975, the case came to trial. Butch had retained well-known area attorney William Weber for his defense. Weber planned to plead innocence by reason of insanity on his client's behalf, based on Butch's pattern of behavior leading up to the crime. While on the stand, Weber showed Butch a photo of his father's body and asked, Butch, did you kill your father? I killed them all, Butch replied. Yes, sir. I killed them all in self-defense. And as far as I'm concerned, if I didn't kill my family, they were going to kill me. As far as I'm concerned, what I did was self-defense, and there was nothing wrong with it. When I got a gun in my hand, there's no doubt in my mind who I am. I am God. Butch claimed that he heard the voices of his family plotting against him, and the defense was able to retain Dr. Daniel Schwartz, a highly reputable psychologist who would later gain national notoriety as the doctor who found David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, to be criminally insane. However, it was Butch's actions after the killing of collecting shell casings from the scene and disposing them with the gun, which ultimately convinced the jury that he was aware of his actions and their consequences. On Friday, November 25 years to life in prison on all six counts. Which is currently being held at the Sullivan Correctional Facility in Fallsburg, New York. All of his appeals and requests to the parole board to date have been denied. Since his conviction, Butch has come up with a number of other alternative theories. He's claimed that Dawn killed their father, and then their distraught mother killed all of his siblings before he killed his mother. He also claimed that Dawn and an unknown assailant who fled the house killed their parents and Dawn killed their siblings. He then killed Dawn by accident as they struggled over the rifle. He claimed that at the time of the murders, he was married to and living with Geraldine Gates and that her brother, Richard Romando, was with him at the time of the murders and could verify his story. Eventually, Gates confessed that she did not marry Ronald DeFeo until 1989 and that Richard Romando did not exist. In 2002, Rick Osuna published a book called The Night the DeFeos Died based on a six-hour conversation he had with Butch DeFeo in November of 2000. According to Osuna, Butch claimed that he had committed the murders with his sister Dawn and two friends, Augie DeGennaro and Bobby Kelsky, because his parents were plotting to kill him. After murdering the parents, unbeknownst to Butch, Don murdered the children to eliminate them as a witness. Butch said that he was enraged at his sister's actions, and as a result, knocked her unconscious onto the bed and shot her in the head. All of these excuses, in addition to being not at all consistent with the physical evidence of each individual being shot in bed while lying on their stomachs, paint Butch as almost a hero. These stories have Butch killing his mother or Dawn, either in self-defense or by accident, after they commit the ultimate crime, which is really his crime, the killing of his younger siblings while they are laying in bed asleep. The fact that 25 years after he is convicted of these cold-blooded murders, he is not only blatantly lying in an attempt to appeal his verdict, but he's trying to do so by pinning it on his own family, who are his victims, is sickening. Ronald DeFeo Jr. was 23 years old when he killed his entire family. Today, he's 65 years old, and he was denied parole in 1999, 2002, 2003, 2005, 2007, 2009, 2011, and 2015. His next parole hearing is scheduled for July of 2017. 
So kind of one big question, which I just want to touch upon briefly before we get to the uh, next part of the story, is that there is some question as to whether there was involvement of another person. One reason that people think this is that, you know, no one in his family woke up or tried to fight back. It would take a while to shoot, you know, six individuals. And although there's some evidence that his mother and sister were awake or waking up, it's a little strange that no one had time to get out of bed. The other thing which I saw while researching this, so there are some conflicting reports as to whether the gun was found, the uh, the 35 caliber rifle was found with the casings that he dropped in that storm drain or whether, you know, no gun was found. And people are wondering this because although it seems like all of them were killed with a 35 caliber rifle, you know, it's possible that one of them was killed with a handgun instead. And when they looked in the river behind the house, years and years and years later, they found the like rusted handle of a handgun. You know, I guess personally, I don't think that there was another person involved because I think that Ronald DeFeo Jr. would clearly say anything to get off. So there was a feasible second person who was there he would have absolutely given up that name. So, but you know, it's interesting. It's a interesting internet hole if you want to fall into it. But I think that for now we should uh, move on to the second portion of the story. Uh, so why don't you start us off? So in December of 1975, just a few weeks after uh, Butch DeFeo was found guilty of the murders of his family, George and Kathy Litz and their three children moved into their new house. It was a large Dutch colonial located at 112 Ocean Avenue in the Amityville neighborhood on the south shore of Long Island, which they had gotten for the bargain price of $80,000. They were aware of the events of the previous year, but discussed the situation as a family and agreed that they were fine with living in the house. They even paid an extra $400 to get the furniture in the house, the furniture which had belonged to the DeFeo family. Creepy. Yeah, would, would you have shelled out the extra $400 for the murder beds? Depends on how nice the murder beds are. <laughs> At the insistence of a family friend, they took the extra precaution of having a priest, Father Ray Pecoraro, come to bless their new home on the day before they moved in, December 18, 1975. As the priest began to pray and sprinkled holy water in the rooms, he heard a masculine voice in the sewing room which told him to get out and felt an unseen hand slap him. Although he did not tell the Lutzes at the time, he called them several days later on December 24th and told them that they should stay out of the second floor room which Kathy had planned to use as her sewing room. This room was previously the bedroom of Mark and John Matthew DeFeo. Pecoraro also reportedly became ill with flu-like symptoms and his hands developed blisters and began to bleed in a manner similar to stigmata. So within a few days of moving into the Amityville house, the Lessons' paranormal experiences began. The events were reported in Jay Anson's book and are based on 45 hours of taped interviews with the Lessons. However, these tapes have never been released and Wikipedia has an excellent summary, which we're gonna borrow. George would wake up around 3.15 every morning and would go out to check the boathouse. Later, he would learn that this was the estimated time of the DeFeo killing. The house was plagued by swarms of flies, despite the winter weather. Kathy had vivid nightmares about the murders and discovered the order in which they occurred and the rooms where they took place. The Lutz children also began sleeping on their stomachs in the same way that the dead bodies in the DeFeo murders had been found. Kathy would feel a sensation as if being embraced in a loving manner by an unseen force. George discovered a small hidden room about four feet by five feet behind shelving in the basement. 
The walls were painted red and the room did not appear in the blueprints of the house. The room came to be known as the Red Room, and this room had a profound effect on their dog, Harry, who refused to go near it and cowered as if sensing something ominous. So there were cold spots and odors of perfume and excrement in areas of the house where no wind drafts or piping would explain the source. While tending to their fire, George and Kathy saw the image of a demon with half of his head blown out. It was burned into the soot in the back of the fireplace. The Lutz's five-year-old daughter, Missy, developed an imaginary friend named Jody, a demonic pig-like creature with glowing red eyes. In the early morning hours of Christmas Day, 1975, George looked up to the house after checking on the boathouse and saw the pig standing behind Missy at her bedroom window. When he ran up to her room, he found her fast asleep with her small rocking chair slowly rocking back and forth. George would often wake up to the sound of the front door slamming. He would race downstairs to find the dog sleeping soundly in the front door. Nobody else heard the sound, although it was loud enough to wake the house. George would hear what was described as a marching band tuning up, or what sounded like a clock radio playing not quite on frequency. When he went downstairs, the noise would cease. So George realized that he bore a strong resemblance to Ronald DeFeo Jr. and began drinking at a bar where DeFeo was once a regular customer. It's the witch's brew in the book. We think it may be Henry's bar in real life. Um, and that was the bar that Ronald DeFeo ran into when had supposedly discovered his family shot. So when closing Missy's window, which Missy said Jody climbed out of, Kathy saw red eyes glowing at her. Kathy threw one of Missy's play chairs at the window, and whatever was out there ran, quote, squealing into the night. So while in bed, Kathy received red welts on her chest caused by an unseen force and was levitated two feet in the air. Well, there's your first sign something's wrong, or I guess your tenth sign something's wrong. So uh, locks, doors, and windows in the house were damaged by an unseen force. There were cloven hoof prints attributed to the, an enormous pig that appeared in the snow outside the house on January 1st of 1976. Green, gelatin-like slime oozed from walls in the hall and also from the keyhole of the playroom door in the attic. So there was a 12-inch crucifix that was hung in the living room by Kathy. It revolved until it was upside down and it gave off a sour smell. George tripped over a four-foot-high China lion ornament in the living room and found bite marks on one of his ankles. Later, this lion would reappear in the living room after George had moved it back upstairs into the sewing room. So George saw Kathy transform into an old woman of nine years old with hair wild, a shocking white, the face a mass of wrinkles and ugly lines, and saliva dripping from the toothless mouth. Missy would sing constantly while in her room. Whenever she left the room, she would stop singing, and upon returning, she would resume singing where she left off. And on one occasion, Kathy heard what sounded like a window being opened and closed to the sewing room door, even though she was sure no one was in there. Around January 8th, while he was checking on the boathouse, George once again heard the sound of a marching band coming from the house. By the time he made it to the living room, the music had ceased but all of the furniture was pushed to one side of the room. They tried calling Father Ray to ask him to come bless the house again, but according to Kathy, quote, each time the call connected, a loud, crackling static erupted over the line, forcing us to hang up. George and Kathy decided to attempt their own blessing on the house. George held a silver crucifix, and they recited the Lord's Prayer together in the living room of the house. Suddenly, a chorus of voices shouted back at them, Will you stop? 
priest recommended that they leave the house for a while, and the Lutzes agreed. They returned to the house and began packing with the intention to stay at Kathy's mother's house for a short trip after the children returned from school. They gathered three changes of clothes for the kids and some dog food for Harry. George reported that as they were packing, quote, the temperature in 112 Ocean Avenue kept fluctuating between hot and cold. The noise is similar to the creaks and groans of a ship started coming from the house. All of us were scared and just wanted to leave. When they finally reached the front door and turned back for one last glimpse at the house, they reported seeing a hooded, inhuman figure on the second floor landing pointing at George. The Lutzes would not return to 112 Ocean Avenue. The next day they sent a mover to the house to remove some of their possessions. He reported no paranormal phenomenon while inside. The Lutzes lived there for a total of just 28 days, not even long enough to make their first mortgage payment. And seven months after they fled, they gave the house back to the bank, and in March of 1977, the house was purchased by Jim and Barbara Cromarty for $55,000. The Cromartys are the ones that really got the bargain of a lifetime because, um, according to the Cromartys, the only phenomena which plagued them were the hordes of tourists who came to gawk at the house following the publication of the Amityville Horror book in 1977 and the first movie in 1979. They even attempted to change the address to confuse these unwelcome visitors. In order to refute the Lutz's allegations, they released a statement which read in part, The quiet village of Amityville, Long Island has been influenced by a hoax. It will possibly never be the same. It is Long Island's equivalent to Watergate. None of us would be here today if a responsible publisher and author had not given credibility to two liars and allowed them the privilege of putting the word true on a book which in all actuality is novel. They also sued the Lutz's, Jay Anson, and the publishers of the Amityville Horror, arguing that the book is an invasion of privacy and that, quote, false misrepresentations were made willfully and solely for commercial exploitation. The parties arrived at an undisclosed settlement. To many, the Amityville haunting is now accepted to be a hoax. In September of 1979, Bush DeFeo's lawyer, William Weber, admitted that he and the Lutzes, quote, created this horror story for many bottles of wine. He said that the house was never haunted and that the horrific experiences were simply made up by the Lutzes being further embellished by Jay Anson in his book. He said that the Lutzes wished to profit for selling their story, and while Weber planned to use the haunting to gain a new trial for his client. However, the Lutzes continued to maintain that their story was true, other than the embellishments made by Jay Anson and liberties taken for the Hollywood adaptation. Inaccuracies, such as the fact that it did not snow on January 1st, the day George reportedly saw the pig hoofprints, were chalked up to poor recollection, a lack of fact-checking, and dramatic license. In June of 1979, George and Kathy Lutz took a polygraph test about their experiences at the house, the results of which did not indicate lying. Weber also offered no proof that he had concocted the story with the Lutzes through any contemporaneous notes or agreements. George and Kathy Lutz divorced in the late 1980s. Kathy died of emphysema in 2004, and George died of heart disease in 2006. Until their deaths, they maintained that what was in the book was mostly true. As for the house, it has had a number of other owners over the years, and none have reported paranormal experiences. Most recently, the house was listed for $850,000 in June of 2016 and sold that November to persons unknown.
So I guess two kind of questions that come to mind from this part of the story is the haunting a hoax or not? That's a great question. And I think that from my perspective, while the idea of the supernatural for me personally is fascinating and it allows my imagination to run wild, I don't believe in supernatural. My thoughts on it are that they did experience something unusual in the house. It doesn't seem to me that they had any motivation to fabricate a story in which their house assaulted them in multiple ways. I I can't see them having the forethought or the imagination to have a plan to make money off of their story. You know, the power of suggestion, the power of the history of the house, you know, the fact that the whole family knew what had happened with the murders. I think that every little thing probably had a greater meaning to them in terms of creepy floorboards or, you know, like any sort of environmental attributes, any settle in the house. We were talking about this during the movie. It's like, what would happen? Would we rent or buy a house? Where I see, that was my second question. <laughs> Getting ahead of me. Yeah. In terms of like, do I think it's a hoax? I don't think they intentionally meant to deceive. I think that they were influenced by the past of the house. I, I think that a lot of people believe in the supernatural. I don't see them as like villains of the story. I don't quite understand why the the family that bought the house for such a cheap price are you know complaining that that this was a hoax or that like like they suffered in any way because of this. Like you know, I don't understand the motivation for that. I really don't. What do you think? I agree. I have trouble imagining it as a hoax. I think it would be, um, you know, a bit convoluted. I can't imagine that even with selling their story, they definitely lost a lot of money, you know, moving out of that house under the circumstances that they did. And it's a very nice house that they got for a bargain. I would imagine that if something wasn't unsettling them, they would have wanted to stay. But I also don't believe in the supernatural. So it's... Yeah, I guess, you know, the one thing I would wonder is, you know, in that case, what would Weber's motivation have been for saying that it was a hoax that they had concocted together? It just seems strange. I guess I don't really know why they would have even had contact with him. And would that have been before they bought the house, after they bought the house, but before they moved in? It's all a little strange. It's strange. And I think maybe the like fame and notoriety behind like, for me, I think of like all of the great, the great filming locations for all of these horror movies or whatever. But you know, imagine being a homeowner and getting unwanted attention to your house. It's like, imagine you buy a house and then you're getting all this attention. And then it's kind of like, what would you say, say to dissuade people from seeing your, your home as some sort of symbol, as some sort of landmark? The fact that they lean so heavily on, oh, the lessons were, were trying to deceive people is just an attempt at subterfuge and in order to kind of just like, you know, throw a bucket of water on the people who are like, this is real, this house is haunted, look at this house. We see it in the film, the house is amazing, it's iconic, it has a face on it, <laughs> it has eyes, and like, I think that that's fascinating, like, regardless of, you know, I don't care that whether or not anything supernatural happened, it's a very cool, 
cool looking thing. Yeah. It does look like Weber may have had a little grudge in uh, March of 1976 when the idea of writing this book about the Lutz's experience was being thrown about. He actually was in the process of doing a book contract with the Lutzes and the Lutzes ended up terminating this contract because they felt that it was not favorable. And instead they went with Jay Anson, the author who ended up writing the um, Amityville Horror. From that historical tidbit, you have some motivation for Weber to, you know, slander the reputation of the Lutzes, but you also have potentially the contact that Weber was referring to where they thought up the idea over many bottles of wine. Um, You know, however, by March of 1976, they were out of the house. So something had happened to, to chase them out of the house at that point. I still am leaning towards, you know, something happened, but maybe they weren't chased out by a demonic pig with glowing red eyes. <laughs> so last question, would you live in a murder house? How about 14 months? That's what it was for... Uh... I think like once you get uh, over that one year mark, I think it's mm. all right. I think that's, that's fine. This is a, you know, the real estate company is probably going to do their best to clean it up. I think a year is, is fine. I'm all right with that. For the most part, I do think like I maybe would rather not know that it was a murder house. But at the same time, if it was as infamous as the Lutz's house, you know, they moved into a house where there were multiple murders and it was kind of a big deal. And at least in the film, it's sort of like, ah, you know, it's like a year ago, so it was whatever. I would rather know right up front, but I will say, and this is a long-winded answer, I mean, I've already said yes, I would. If it was like anything over the four months. I feel like a year would make me all right. I think I probably lived in murder houses. I probably murdered, lived in... You probably murdered? Whoa, what? <laughs> Wait, what? Uh, I, I have probably lived in, like, apartments where people have died under whatever circumstances, old age, whatever, some yeah. old person died in the corner of, like, my apartment in St. Louis or whatever, or, like... I mean, the house we lived in in Maplewood was built in the 1910s. I'm um, sure someone has died in that house. Someone probably died in that antique bed set that I had. That's like one of the first things my mom said when we got that. She's like, this is so old. Probably someone has died of old age in it. And I'm like, yeah. We thrifted a lot. People died in chairs we bought and stuff. It's, it's whatever. It gives a character. That's how you build character. Um, well, okay, what about you? Would you live in a murder house with me and the kitties and Hillary? I would. <laughs> I would. You know, I do think, yeah, I think, as you said, time makes a difference. I think having a occupant buffer um, in terms of buying or renting, there is, you know, a murder that happened, but then someone had lived there afterwards, just, you know, in case... You know, it's like, look at the Lutzes. They had all the freaky shit happen. And then everyone else since then has been fine. So, you know, I also think the circumstances of the crime matter. I would definitely want to know. I think that something like a uh, a crime of passion being killed by someone you know, which is way more likely. I actually feel more comfortable living there versus something like a serial killer, like some 
unknown assailant breaks in and murders someone, I'd be like, no way. <laughs> this house is like a target or something. But yeah, I'm, I'm more paranoid than you. I think generally speaking, death is not a cootie that you need to worry about, maybe for the Lutzes, but... So, so yes, so in general, murder house, yes. I've been uh, looking at houses on Zillow. I'll check the murder house box and I'll uh, find us a swell new place. That sounds good. So I think we're in agreement. And uh, so we're married and we're going to be in the same uh, route. At least we're on the same page. <laughs> based off the true crime, based off the book, the 1979 Amityville horror film starred Mario success at the time on a budget of about $5 million. It ended up pulling in around $85 million at the box office. Through the 70s, there have been a wave of haunted house movies, of possession. Yeah, I mean, The Exorcist was kind of the big one, I know. Pretty sure some advertising for this film was, you know, scarier than The Exorcist, although I did not find it scarier than The Exorcist. Oh, we'll probably we have to do an episode on Exorcist, um, having just moved to Cincinnati from St. Louis, um, where, you know, the events that it's based on took place. Probably our next visit to St. Louis. We should go take some pictures and then do the episode afterwards. When I think of the film, the main thing I see is that house with those eyes. Yes, yes. And it's used in all the advertising. And it's, you know, while it's not the exact house, actually, it's funny. um, The movie is filmed at a different Dutch colonial style house in Tom's River, New Jersey, which is very close to where I grew up in Belmar, New Jersey. And yes, the the house was, you know, chosen in part because it does have those very distinctive, um, like half circle windows on, on its face. So it's iconic. <laughs> yes. That includes the beard, oh. which is quite impressive. Oh, yeah. And beards are back in vogue, right, David? They are. <laughs> David has, uh, uh, I would say, pretty awesome beard. He did a great job. Maybe a little bit of a ham, but, you know, I liked it. So there's the original Ambulance Horror, and then the next evening we followed up with its screening of the 2005 remake, which was produced by Michael Bay's Platinum Dunes production company. If they sound familiar, they were responsible for a couple of remakes in the early audience, including both remake of Ambulance Horror, as well as bringing Texas Chainsaw Massacre back, remaking and then the ultimate travesty upon the world, the remake of the Nightmare on Elm Street. So don't get me started on that. Are we going to, again, once an episode, we just have to mention Nightmare on Elm Street? Is that the rule? I can, I can put it in even if we don't say it. <laughs> like, like, no, you can say that with the exact same vocal intonation as before. And so we like, Nightmare on Elm Street. Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> Starring 
big name Ryan Reynolds now. At the time, he wasn't, you know, quite the super popular actor. Post everything he's been in, I, w I just really want to say like post Deadpool, but of course Ryan, Ryan Reynolds was successful before Deadpool. He's been in a ton of. Um, movies. hello, the proposal. Yes. How, how could how could you forget when I made you watch the proposal? Yeah, there's the proposal. I love that movie. I got no shame. <laughs> we screened them back to back. What were your impressions of seeing them so close together? I did consult the literature, we'll say. I looked at some um, reviews of both movies while processing my thoughts, and I was very surprised to see um, multiple reviews saying that they preferred the 2005 one because they thought the 1979 movie was boring. <laughs> And I strongly disagree. I guess maybe I'm a little atypical in that I am not a fan of those Audie's horror movies. <laughs> um, that kind of cluster of movies are not to my personal taste. I like the pacing of the 1979 movie much better than the 2005 movie. I liked the themes better. I liked the characters better. I thought it was scarier. <laughs> so I guess I'll maybe leave it at that and have your thoughts and then we could get into specific points. Mm -hmm. a mean streak throughout the remake that, you know, it just feels kind of gross. I think the original, the threat is the house. It's a haunted house film, whereas the Ryan Reynolds version, the Michael Bay version, the modern, yeah, the remake, it just, uh, the villain is George Lutz. And I think that shift in focus really changes the story, right? Yeah. It, it changes the experience. And so I find it to be a, a negative and an unpleasant film versus the original. To me, it's a more thoughtful, just well-structured haunted house movie. The, the textures and the, the just filmmaking styles of the time and the performances, and it just, it, it feels like it happened in the 70s. I think unless they specifically call it out in the remake, there's not much there to really indicate that. It's one of those movies where you're like, you could watch it not knowing when it happened, and you could be like, oh, I never realized there were no cell phones in this movie, <laughs> you know? Yeah. The beard they made Ryan Reynolds grow didn't give you that 70s vibe. Yeah, no, not that much. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, your point about kind of the, the villain being George rather than the house is really what kind of stood out and rubbed me the wrong way. Also, I think, you know, the idea of, you know, the house possessing George and, you know, making him this threat to his family is not in the original novel. It's not in the haunting story. That's the Hollywood edition. And I understand where they're going with it. I think that they do it to an extent in the 1979 movie. They do have this idea, you know, Jody doesn't like George. And there was this fear when I watched it the first time and I, you know, didn't know that, spoiler alert, they all survive at the end. I was worried that it was going to go in that direction. I feel like while I had elements of that to add that sort of Hollywood factor, it didn't cross certain lines that the 2005 remake did. Whereas in the 1979 movie, I was always rooting for George and the family. In the 2005 movie, I was not rooting for George. Almost from like the, the turnaround of Ryan Reynolds' character happens so so fast and so early it was just like an entire movie of watching this guy like abuse his family it was just not yeah it was just not pleasant to watch i did not like it i did not like the changes they made at all and
his perception of the films getting made, and he had vastly different views of both of them, right? Yes. So around the time that the 2005 movie uh, was coming out, George Lutz did give a couple of interviews. This was actually um, the last year of his life. He died in 2006. And prior to his death, he was actually being sued by MGM um, because he had sent them a number of letters kind of inquiring about this remake. They didn't reply to any of them, and then they sued him. So uh, he gave a couple of interviews where he talked about, you know, his feelings on both the 1979 movie and the 2005 remake. So about the 1979 movie, he was asked, I guess there was the impression that he really hated that movie. And he said in this interview, I don't recall ever saying I hated it. I was misquoted. That's what someone else claimed I had said. The only thing I've ever said about that film is that it's Hollywood and that it was someone else's interpretation of events, you know, and I left it at that. I've never expanded on that in some way. To say the first movie is inaccurate is an understatement. There never was any blood coming from any walls or any of that type of stuff. It's been a long time since I've looked at it, so you'll have to excuse my leaving things out. The pit in the basement. The idea of going back for the dog was ridiculous. We didn't forget about him. So it's kind of interesting that, you know, after all of these years, the first thing that came to mind when he was asked about that 1979 movie was the end when George Lutz kind of heroically, he gets the whole family out of the house and they're driving away and they realize that they forgot about Harry the dog. <laughs> so he, he pulls the van over, stops the van, you know, runs back in. The dog is down in the basement and he goes to run down to the basement to get the dog. The stairs fall through. He falls into this like pit of black slime and is eventually able to kind of crawl his way out with the help of the dog, of course, because, you know, as George Lutz said, this is Hollywood. <laughs> um, so he, he gets out, he gets the dog, carries the dog back to the car, they get in the car and they drive away. So, of course, this ending is very different than the ending of the 2005 remake, particularly for Harry the dog, who Ryan Reynolds dismembers with an axe. I do, I do count on David in scenes like that in movies. He tells me when they're over, so thank you. You do it for me. <laughs> That's actually probably what it is. So the interviewer asks George next if um, he's aware about what happens to the dog in the new film. And George Lutz says, yes, I am. And the interviewer says, how do you feel about that? That's pretty brutal. And George Lutz says, I think it's beyond brutal. And it's quite an accusation to make about someone that is being portrayed in a movie based on a nonfiction book, a true story. And that person is still living as well. That really is quite an accusation. And then he goes on to say, it's appalling that someone would do this to a living person. This kind of fiction touches real lives. Let's reverse it for a moment. Maybe it's the best way to do it. Let's say I put together a movie or some kind of screenplay and get it depicted on film about the people that made this movie, some of the key players involved, the people responsible for this. What if I created some type of biography about them that said they lived in a house and that they went back and forth to work and that they worked in these offices, but then I added all of these horrible things. Just because there's an element of truth in there still doesn't make it a true story. Yeah. Not only just got it wrong, but like this is like complete opposite of awareness of the person. 
Well, I mean, he never killed his dog with an axe. So, um, you know, as we said earlier, until the day he died, he stood by his experience in that house. So I feel like, of course, some liberties are going to be taken for, you know, turning it into a movie. But I think particularly the 2005 remake goes beyond. And uh, one thing I do want to touch upon with with this change, um, because, you know, this isn't just a movie about a haunted house. You know, it's also about Ronald DeFeo Jr., who murdered his entire family. Uh, the The movie opens with Ronald DeFeo Jr. shooting his family. And, you know, he goes up to his younger sister's bedroom in the attic, who, of course, her name is Jody in this, because rather than a pig demon, which is true to the haunting story, you know, Jody is the spirit of DeFeo's younger sister. So in this remake, he, you know, she's hiding in the closet and he opens the closet door and, you know, he's crying and he says, I love you, Jody," and shoots her. And the idea is that he is possessed and eventually Ryan Reynolds is possessed by this like twisted Catholic priest named Ketchum who would torture Native Americans in the basement of the house. And I just think to a certain extent they are they're trying to make or they're not maybe they're not trying, but unintentionally they make Ronald DeFeo Jr.'s crimes something that he didn't commit, saying that he loves his younger sister. Um he shot both of his sisters and both of his brothers and his parents. <laughs> um, you know, there's absolutely no evidence of this. I mean this is completely made up. Ketchum is not a real person. Um. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's, it's turning him into some sort of supernatural being, which trying to like kind of deconstruct the creative decisions, I just think of two words, and that's like Michael Bay. A lot of his work is very bombastic. It's very like interface. It's all in the editing and the action. And the, all of the threats are externalized. Everything is goofy, gross, gory. It's just all, mm. all that. I feel like, you know, one thing that was so creepy about true story of the haunting or whatever you want to call it and the 1979 movie is, you know, some of those elements are just so weird. And that's what makes you think, like, maybe it's real. Stuff like a marching band tuning up in the living room that you hear and then you get there and the sound is gone and stuff like a pig demon it's just completely random. And I feel like those are kind of the elements that wow me more than like, you're washing your hands in the sink and you look up and it's a, yeah, gross, goopy ghost. <laughs> like, um, I'm going to I'm gonna give this one uh, two thumbs down. Two thumbs down to do a five version. Yeah. And uh, I feel like one and a half thumbs up for the 1979. Very good. I mean, not... You want to go just from a movie standpoint, movies from the era, I, I would give Exorcist two thumbs up. I give Amityville one and a half, but good. I liked it. I enjoyed it a lot. I think that the 79 version stands alone. I don't think anything, I don't think the 2005 version did any harm to the original. I mean, we talk about this 2005 version as sort of a blip in the many interpretations of the Amityville story that have been told in film. There is an insane list of movies that they've made with Amityville in the title. Starting with the 79 version of the Amityville Horror, they quickly followed up three years later with Amityville 2, The Possession. The next year, Amityville 3, D, <laughs> Part 4, The Evil Escapes, Amityville Curse, Amityville Stop Time, A New Generation, Dollhouse, the remake of the Amityville Horror, six years later, Amityville Haunting, Asylum, Death House, Playhouse, Vanishing Point, the Amityville Legacy. Is that the one? No, that's not the one. Okay, The Awakening is 
The one that got pushed back? Yeah. This is probably, you know, the closest thing we have to a real haunting, you know, here in America. This is this is our haunted house. One thing um, when I was reading about those interviews with George Lutz, the person who was interviewing wrote in the article after they talked to George on the phone and hung up suddenly like right outside of the apartment, like a car went into a tailspin and got into an accident. And even though the interviewer had felt fine, suddenly they started dry heaving. <laughs> so who knows? Maybe maybe it wasn't the house. Maybe it was the family. <laughs> He's, and he said that people have those stories about their interactions with him. I would say it's all in their heads because I'm a skeptic. But occasionally, I, uh, I want to believe. I mean, check check out these movies. Check out both of them and let us know what you think. If you really dig those mid-aught horror movies, if you're a big Michael Bay fan, find me online and tell me I'm wrong. Here's the interesting thing. So for me, I feel like after having learned more about the true crime aspect of it, that's the more fascinating story to me. I had always been into the original movie and the story of the house and the hauntings. But after learning about the crimes that Ronald McDowell Jr. committed, it's that aspect of it that I find terrifying. And I think the remake kind of just, for some reason, just dilutes the fictionalized aspect of the, of the story a bit. So I learned a lot, you know, in discussing the history of this. And I would say from a, like, home perspective, I'm interested in that new one that they've been threatening to release for, like, about three years now. Especially knowing more about the shall we get into our segment ideas uh you know because we are a mostly film podcast um we're not sure if we're going to be ending on these segments or starting on them from now on but uh we want to have two segments one is now playing where we talk about movies and tv shows that we've watched recently that we want to recommend or maybe just you know, talk about a little bit, but not in depth. And then coming soon. So stuff we're planning on watching or um, movies that have just been announced that we're excited about. So yeah, something to look out for in the future and something we're going to preview right now. So David, what is your choice for Now Playing? Right. And I, I loved it. We watched it together and um, I, I really did love it. So my choice for now playing is, of course, the new HBO documentary, Mommy Dead and Dearest, just came out May 15th and it's great. So this is a case I actually first read about it. There's this great long form article on BuzzFeed called Dee Dee Wanted Her Daughter to Be Sick. Gypsy Wanted Her Mom to Be Murdered by uh, Michelle Dean, who was interviewed actually for the documentary. And they also interviewed Gypsy, who is uh, serving her prison sentence now. 
now. And I mean, it's fascinating. I think they do an excellent job. I actually, if you watched it and you want a little more information, I think that the BuzzFeed article goes more in depth. If I recall correctly, I read the article um, probably almost a year ago, but it's it's a really, really fascinating case about Munchausen by proxy, which is an absolutely crazy diagnosis that you might remember if you've ever seen The Sixth Sense. I think one of the best one sentence summaries I've read was, I can't, I can't remember the exact wording, but it was the murder is the least messed up part of the story. (laughs) And that's probably true. So how about for a year coming soon? Um, And My Coming Soon is a movie, actually, I had never heard of it until David showed me the trailer a couple days ago. So you know where this is going, right? (laughs) Um, It's called I Am Not a Serial Killer. And the trailer just looks amazing. I am so excited to watch this movie. And uh, it's on Netflix, so don't tweet me any spoilers. I'll probably see it in the next couple days. Yeah, our uh, our Twitter is at true crime based, and our Instagram is at based on a true crime. Yep, and we're on Facebook as based on a true crime. We're also on Tumblr as based on a true crime. Oh, I didn't know we're on Tumblr now. Yeah, we're- <laughs> I didn't know Tumblr still exists. Yeah, so a little little story time to finish. So. uh Today is the day that we we kind of announced on our our Facebooks that we made this podcast. And um, me being the genius that I am, I I decided to Photoshop. It was like a little it's a girl announcement. So it was a little store carrying a baby and a little piece of cloth. And it said, it's a girl on the bottom. So I took a picture of a podcast with our cover art and I pasted it over the like cartoon baby's head and I erased girl and I wrote murder podcast and I thought ha 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 I'm so clever right I posted it this morning um got a couple comments from friends that thought it was funny of course comment from David who thought it was funny (laughs) um and then literally as we were about to start recording this which is the um we actually split it into two days so this is day two of recording about Amityville Horror I get first a comment on the Facebook post from David's And he says, can't get into the podcast is a baby on the way. And I read it and I was like, it's a joke, right? (laughs) Um, And then suddenly David's phone rings and it's his and his had called his saying that I'm pregnant. We're announcing it on the podcast. (laughs) Um, She says they would not announce it on a podcast. They would tell me first. So, yeah, if you do somehow get into the podcast and you're listening to this, uh, I'm sorry for giving you a heart attack. I'm also sorry for giving you a heart attack. Um, but I, I I am not having a baby. I'm having a murder podcast. <laughs> I, I did reply to 
a comment while we were recording. I said, no baby, just a podcast. They're way less work. And says, so sad, crying face emoji. I was hoping it was a baby. <laughs> so um, I learned my lesson today. <laughs> no fake baby announcements, no matter how clear you think you're being. Um, and I will not be doing this again. <laughs> Yeah, yep. So that's my that's my true story for today. Maybe that'll be our our third segment, our true life horrors. Oh, wait. Oh no. All right. Well, that's all I have for this week. If you listen to it and like it, reach out to us. And thank you, listeners. It's viewers like, I mean, listeners. <laughs> yep, <laughs> thank you. Time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.